If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the 26th chapter of the book of Acts. We're going to cover part two of what we started last week, this fifth and final defense of the Apostle Paul as he stands before King Agrippa. In chapter 25, we saw that chapter 25 was kind of a setup as King Agrippa comes to greet the new governor of the province, Festus, and Festus spends chapter 25 basically bringing Agrippa up to speed on what's been happening with Paul. And Agrippa indicates that he wants to hear from Paul himself, and so they put together this VIP gathering the very next day, and Paul gives his defense speech. And that defense speech takes up almost the whole chapter of chapter 26. Um, And we saw last week that this speech can be divided into five parts. We covered the first three parts last week. We'll cover the last two this week. And the first three verses is just some introductory remarks. And then Paul talks about his upbringing. He says, I was a Jew. I I was a Pharisee. Um, And he talks about his pre-Damascus Road ministry, which was going out and persecuting Christians. And then we kind of closed last week looking at Paul's recounting of his Damascus Road experience as Jesus shows up to Paul on the Damascus Road and converts him, uh, brings him to faith, and then commissions him to preach the gospel. And we're going to look at the last two this morning in the second half of chapter 26. First of all, his post-Damascus Road ministry. What did he do after he received this commission from Jesus? And then we're going to see his uh, heartfelt call for response that's going to take place um, in this banter back and forth between Festus and Agrippa and himself. And so let's look at chapter 26. We're going to pick up right, <clears throat> right after uh, the Damascus Road experience and pick up right at verse 19 and cover through the end of the chapter. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and, the, and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, 
whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And now we ask, Lord, that you'd speak to us. That you'd speak to us from this word. That you would give us not just an understanding in our head, but that, Lord, that you would drive it deep into our soul. That you would use your word among your people this morning to make us look more like your son, Jesus. That you would sanctify us in truth this morning. And Lord, that you would remind us that you're still in control and that you're sovereign. And may that trust in your sovereignty compel us, Father, to, like Paul, be a faithful and courageous witness to the world that you've sent us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I see some some primary elements in this second half of chapter 26 that help to kind of coalesce to give us the main idea of this passage. First of all, we see this dichotomy again between Paul's innocence and his imprisonment, right? His innocence and his imprisonment. And some might say that's not fair, but Paul says God is sovereign, And so we see Paul, again, growing to trust in God's sovereignty more and more. That's one thing. Secondly, we see this thing that we've seen all along in this section of the book of Acts as Paul defends the gospel and defends his life and ministry, this inextricable link between what he's preaching and Judaism. He says, this is nothing new. This this is simply fulfillment of that which has been taught to our people from of old. And we've seen this theme all throughout this section, but we've not spent a whole lot of time on it. And so if you'll indulge me this morning, I want us to, to look at that and, and ask, why is that so important for Paul? And, and secondly, and perhaps more applicable for us, why is that important for us to see that Christianity is rooted in Judaism? And then thirdly, we see this bold and courageous call on the part of Paul as he preaches the gospel to call people to repentance and faith. He doesn't just tell them what it is. He asks them to respond, to repent and to turn. And so as I put those together, I think Luke's primary emphasis here in the second half of chapter 26 is to show Paul's trust in God's sovereignty, to to show that Paul is, is trusting in God's sovereign presence and God's sovereign help, both in his life and his ministry and in the redemption of sinners. And that as Paul grows to trust God's sovereignty more and more, this compels him to courageously declare the gospel and to boldly call people to repentance and faith in response to it. So if that's Luke's primary emphasis in this passage, then the main point for us this morning is this, that as we grow in our trust of God's sovereign presence 
provision and plan, we will more courageously declare the gospel and we will more boldly call sinners to repentance and faith. So let's look at this as we walk through this passage. Let's look first at Paul's obedience to the commission that Jesus gave him. After he recounts the story of his conversion and commissioning by the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, he says this in verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. In other words, all I've done is obey what this heavenly vision told me to do. I've simply been obedient to this commissioning that I received from heaven. I wasn't disobedient to it. I was obedient to it. But Paul's obedience to this commission requires two things. And he tells us as we go through this text what his obedience to the commission that Jesus gave him is dependent on. First of all, is dependent on a breadth of declaration. Obedience to his commission is dependent on him declaring the gospel broadly. What does he say there in verse 20? That he declared it first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles. He declared the gospel broadly. And we remember in that story when, when uh, Jesus showed up to Ananias in Damascus saying, hey, Ananias, I'm going to send this guy named Paul to you. You're going to anoint him. You're going to open his eyes, and then you're going to give him the commission that I've given to him. Jesus says to Ananias, go for he, that is Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to do what? To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And that's what Paul is doing right here in this passage. He's carrying the name of Jesus before the Gentiles, kings, and before the children of Israel. So Paul has been obedient to his commission with respect to the breadth of declaration that it required. Well, friends, we know that we too have been given a commission that requires a breadth of declaration. Jesus said to all of his disciples in the first chapter of Acts, verse 9, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you, my disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And just as obedience to Paul's commission required a breadth of declaration, so does obedience to the commission that Christ has given to us. Until the gospel of Jesus Christ reaches the ends of the earth and all nations, then we've still got work to do. And unless the aim of our gospel work includes all nations, then we're not being obedient to the commission that Jesus gave us. That's why, that's why our mission at New Branch is to glorify God by making disciples of all nations, all peoples. And all nations begins with our next door neighbor and it extends literally to the ends of the earth. Obedience to the Great Commission requires that, that we not leave either of those mission fields out, either our next door neighbor or the unreached people groups in the 1040 window. 
Now, in order for us to be obedient to this breadth of declaration, it's going to require that we lean on good, kingdom-minded gospel partners in order to aim the gospel at unreached peoples at the ends of the earth. And so we partner with the McCulloughs. We partner with the Busers and the Earls. We partner with the International Mission Board. Why? To aim the gospel at people groups in places that we will probably never set our feet in. Like Paul, our obedience to our commission that Jesus gave us is dependent on a breadth of declaration. But for Paul, obedience to his commission also required something else. It required a a courageous declaration. Not just a breadth of declaration, but a courageous declaration. Again, look at verses 19 and 20. He says, "I, I was obedient to this heavenly vision, and that, and that obedience was dependent, as we said, on him declaring the gospel broadly. Damascus, Jerusalem, Gentiles, um, everyone, everywhere, all throughout the region. And second, it was dependent on him declaring the gospel courageously. Now, where do we see his courageous declaration? Well, the courage of Paul's gospel declaration is seen in how he calls his hearers to respond to the gospel. Look at the end of verse 20. Paul explains to Agrippa what he expects when he preaches the gospel. He he explains the response that he is calling for when he declared the gospel all over the place. He declared it broadly to what end? End of verse 20. That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Last week, we, last week we saw the word for turn in verse 18, and we noted that it wasn't the typical word for repent, metaneo, that instead it was the word epistrepho, which means to turn. Metaneo means to change one's mind. Epistrepho means to turn around and go in the other direction. And so here in verse 20, though, we see both of those words used together, metaneo and epistreo, epistrepho. Turn, uh, change your mind, Change the way you're thinking about this and turn around. Change the way that you're going. Turn around from, from going in this direction and go in the other direction. And they're both in the aorist infinitive, which is a, a, it's a Greek verb uh, tense and, and verb mood that carries with it the weight of an imperative. And so Paul is reporting to Agrippa here that that when he declared the gospel broadly all over the place, he told them what they ought to do in response to it, that they ought to repent and turn and live differently. And Paul is showing tremendous courage in calling for this response and calling for his hearers to repent and turn. Jesus had told Paul back on that Damascus Road experience that this would be part of his commission. That, that part of his commission is, is that he would tell people to turn. Verses 17 and 18 from last week. Jesus said, I'm delivering you from, from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and turn from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus had told Paul 
that part of his commission, part of his responsibility to declare the gospel would involve a call for his hearers to respond in repentance. And Paul had been obedient to that commission, both in its breadth and in its need for courage and calling for them to repent and turn and live differently. But there had been a price for his obedience, as we see in verse 21. Paul says in verse 21, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. In other words, the Jews didn't like me not because of my beliefs in Jesus, per se, but because I told them that they needed to accept it, that they needed to turn, that they needed to repent and live accordingly and live differently. That's why they'd seize me, and that's why they tried to kill me. If that's the case, it leads me to wonder if Paul had not called for a response. If he had just said, guys, this is what I believe. And he, hadn't call, he didn't call for his hearers to respond. I wonder if he would be in chains at this point. And, and that leads me further to wonder if sometimes subconsciously we who claim the name of Christ, that we sometimes subconsciously shy away from calling for a response to the gospel out of a fear for how people might respond to us if we do. If we call for people to repent, if we call for people to turn, to believe, to change the way they're thinking about Jesus, if we call for them to respond, they might not like us. They might reject us. It's fine for us to talk about what we believe, but if we call for them to respond, they might think we're weird. They, they might not want to be our friends anymore. They might reject us. They, they might persecute us, not as they persecuted Paul, but to some degree. How much of our reticence to call people to respond is out of a fear of that. And if that's the case, what do we do to fight against that fear? Well, what did Paul do? What kept him in the game? What was his help? Well, he tells us in the next verse, verse 22, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great. Paul says, God has helped me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. Whether it was on his first journey back in Lystra, as he was first setting out on his missionary journeys, you recall in Lystra, they stoned him nearly to death. And he lie on the street, half dead, God helped him. God helped him to get up, go back into the city, and keep preaching the gospel. Or whether it was on his second journey as he found himself in Philippi and he and Silas get thrown into prison, God helped him by sending a targeted earthquake right to that prison cell and opened the door and sets him free. Or whether it was later on that same journey as 
Paul finds himself standing before the Grand Areopagus in Athens. God helped him and gave him the words to speak and testify to Christ. Or whether it was on his third journey when God helped him by saving him from a riot in Ephesus. Or whether it was when he finally returned to Jerusalem and he was arrested in the temple and there was a plot kill him, and God helped him by orchestrating this miraculous escape to Caesarea. Paul now finds himself in Caesarea in chains, and he looks back over his life and ministry, and he testifies, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. Paul had learned to trust in God's sovereign help. He learned to trust in God's sovereign presence, that he was never alone, that God was always with him as he stepped out in faith to to bring witness to Christ. He learned to trust in God's sovereign provision, that God would always give him what he needed in the moment, that he would give him the words to say in that very hour. And he learned to trust in God's sovereign plan. And that God's sovereign plan sometimes required Paul to suffer. But even in that, he could learn to trust that God's plan was good. And he learned to trust in God's sovereign plan to redeem sinners. That God's plan was that God was the only one who would change their hearts. He learned that that God was the one who redeemed sinners, not himself. And the more that Paul grew to trust in God's sovereign provision and presence and plan, the more he was compelled to be bold and courageous in his witness of the gospel. And so church, we need to also remember that God has likewise promised to help us just as he helped Paul. We have the promise of God's help as we step out in faith to be a witness for Christ and represent him to others, we don't do that alone. Alone, We're not by ourselves. Christ is with us just as he was with Paul. So he is with us. And so we too need to learn to trust God more, trust in his sovereign presence, his sovereign provision and plan, And as a result of trusting him more in these areas, we will be encouraged and we will be compelled to be more bold and more courageous in taking the gospel to those around us. And Paul tells us that this was part of why God helped him. What was the purpose of God's help in Paul's life? Listen to what Paul says there in verse verse, uh, 22. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. So so God has helped Paul, but but to what end, he continues, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great. In other words, Paul's testimony is that God has helped me so that I can stand here today and testify both to small and to great about Jesus. Testify to all of you about the glory of Christ. God orchestrated this divine encounter, and because of his help, I stand here today 
to testify to you about the gospel. Church, perhaps God's help in our lives, for which we are so grateful and thankful, perhaps God's help in our lives, His presence, His provision, His plan, is not just so that we will live comfortable, easy lives, but rather so that we would be able to stand and testify in the divine encounters that he orchestrates for us. He helps us. He helps us in countless ways. But maybe that help is not just so that we can be comfortable, but rather maybe so that we can be uncomfortable and be able to stand and testify when he orchestrates divine encounters for us to speak the truth about him. And what was it that Paul was testifying about in this setting? He says, next, continuing on in verse 22, I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying what? Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Namely, verse 23, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And so again, this has been a theme all throughout this closing section of Acts as Paul gives defense speech after defense speech. He asserts over and over and over again that the gospel that he's preaching and the gospel that he's he's being persecuted for is inextricably linked to Judaism. And we've seen this many times. Commentator Daryl Bach writes this. Paul is presenting himself as a preacher of Jewish promise and Jewish hope. Here, the claim is that although the preaching of Christ seems new, it is in fact very old, rooted in the Hebrew scriptures already ancient in Paul's time. So Paul is not a religious innovator and perverter of the truth, as he is accused of being. He is merely preaching what God promised from long ago. So that's Paul's assertion. That this gospel that he's preaching, he's being tried for, is inextricably linked to the Jewish faith. But two questions that I want us to wrestle with for just a moment about this. First, can we prove this from the scriptures themselves? Is this actually the case? And secondly, does it even matter? Is it really even that important for us to see the link between Christianity and Judaism? Well, the unqualified answer to both of those questions is yes, but I want us to to see that fleshed out. First of all, can we prove this from Scripture? Do we actually see in the Hebrew Scriptures this connection to what now Paul is preaching, this gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we see it? Absolutely, we see it. What what specifically does Paul assert here that Moses and the prophets say will come to pass? First, that there will be a Messiah. Messiah. That there will be an anointed one, the Christ, that he will come. And there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus explicitly fulfilled. Absolutely, we see this in the scriptures. Secondly, they prophesied that the Messiah would suffer and consequently die. Do we see that? We just read from Isaiah 53, where we see that most predominantly in that prophecy of the coming Messiah who would be a suffering servant by whose stripes we are healed. 
We also see that in Psalm 2 and in Psalm 118. Thirdly, they prophesy that he would rise from the dead, that this anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, would come. He'd suffer and die, but he would rise from the dead. We see that in Psalm 16. We see that in Psalm 110. And then lastly, they prophesied that he would proclaim light, that is, hope, to both our people and to the Gentiles. And of course, that promise goes all the way back to the promise that was given to Father Abraham when Yahweh shows up to him and, and says, from your line will come one who will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And so absolutely we see evidence for that in the scriptures, that Christianity is inextricably linked to Judaism. But again, does it matter? Why is that important? We can understand why that's important for Paul in this setting. Because after all, it's the Jews themselves who are accusing Paul of preaching a belief system that is, that is aberrant to the Jewish belief system. And Paul says, this stuff that I'm preaching is not aberrant to the Jewish belief, belief system. In fact, it is showing a fulfillment to it. It's inextricably linked to it. And so we understand why this issue was important in this setting for Paul, because it was critical to his defense. But is it important for us today to see the, the connection, the inextricable link between Christianity and Jews? Is that important for us today? I think it is. Number one, if you're talking to a Jewish person about Jesus, it is absolutely important that we see that Christianity is rooted in Judaism. Secondly, if you hold to a dispensational theology, which I don't happen to, but if you do, if you hold to that kind of system, it's equally important. The dispensational theology says that God is not finished with Israel yet, that God is operating through the church now in the church age, but then he's going to rapture the church, and after he raptures the church, then he's going to go back and fulfill all of those Old Testament prophecies to the nation of Israel. I don't personally affirm that system of theology, but if you do, then it's really important that you see the connection between Judaism and Christianity. But if you're not preaching the gospel to a Jew and you don't hold to dispensational theology, is it important that we see the Jewish roots of Christianity? Absolutely it is, for four reasons. Number one, it's biblical. Uh, this is how God did things. And as God's people, we should want to know and understand how God operates and why he did things the way, the way that he did. Secondly, it keeps us from doing what, uh, what a, a famous pastor said in recent years, unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament. If Christianity is inextricably linked to Judaism, and it is, then we should want to pour ourselves into the Hebrew Scriptures, which is the Old Testament which shows us where Christianity came from. And so it keeps us going back to the Old Testament. Thirdly, it reminds us that our faith is rooted in a very ancient religion. You know, Christianity may have gotten its start at Jesus' earthly ministry some 2,000 years ago, but its roots go back much, much further than that, much further back than Buddhism, a 1,000 years before Buddhism, Buddhism traces its roots back to the 5th or 6th century before Christ. Christianity traces its roots to 1,800 years before Christ. And over 2,400 years before Islam, 
The prophet Muhammad didn't start talking about Allah until the 6th century after Christ in the Arabian Peninsula. But our faith traces its origin back almost 4,000 years. Now, why is, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because that means that we have an account of history here that goes back 4,000 years. And some 18,000 or 1,800 years after the first recorded account of Abraham leaving Ur of the Chaldeans and going to Canaan, being led by Yahweh to the land of Canaan, 1,800 years after that, we have recorded for us that God sent his son in fulfillment of the promise that he made 1,800 years earlier. And friend, there is no world religion on the face of the earth that can claim that kind of ancient prophecy fulfillment. And so to me, the biggest reason why it's important for us to grasp the Jewish roots of our Christian faith is to to give us an apologetic, a, a, a rationality and reasonableness for the existence of the God of the Bible. That he is real, that he is true, that he is the one true and living God, creator of the universe. If he can make a promise that won't be fulfilled for 1,800 years, then he must be God because he is not bound by time and space. He is above and beyond time and space because he created them both. And so Paul says this. Here's what Paul says in his defense. Guys, I'm not saying anything that Moses and the prophets haven't already said. I'm preaching about a Jewish hope. I'm preaching about a Jewish promise. The only difference is I'm saying that this promise has been kept. And I'm saying that this hope has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And because it's been fulfilled in him, then I'm calling on both Jew and Gentile alike to respond to this by repenting and turning and trusting in this Jesus. And he says, for this I'm being tried. So Paul's formal defense speech ends there in verse 23, or it's probably more appropriate that that it's interrupted by Festus in verse 24, when we're told that Festus says, with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Literally, he says, Paul, you're mad. You've lost your mind. You're insane, Paul, to which Paul replies to this accusation in verse 25. I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. The New American Standard translates this, words of sober truth. The the, the word for sober or rational there comes from a word that argues for soundness of mind as opposed to being out of one's mind. And truth, referring to truth that is objectively true. But, But what was it about what Paul said? What was it about Paul's defense here that that triggered Festus to make make this accusation? We don't know exactly, but we can guess that it probably wasn't what Paul was saying about the inextricable link between what he was preaching and Judaism because Festus didn't know anything about Judaism or Christianity. But what Festus did know about was decorum and diplomacy because after all, he was a politician. He was a diplomat. He was an ambassador 
for Caesar. He was an expert in decorum and diplomacy. And his, in his mind, Paul's continuing ins- insistence that the Jews in this grand audience hall, including the king and including the VIPs that were gathered here, that Paul's continued insistence that they repent and turn and live differently and change the way they thought and change the way they live to Festus. This was anything but diplomatic. This was anything but in keeping with decorum politically. You just didn't do this. You didn't just walk into a grand hall filled with VIPs and kings and tell them to repent. You just didn't do this. Unless you were out of your mind. There's a parenthetical application for us here, I believe. And that is that sometimes, sometimes being a faithful witness means being willing to be thought of as out of our mind. Being willing to be thought of as just not right, at least in the world's eyes. Just a bit off because we keep talking about Jesus and we won't shut up about him. Paul had written to the Corinthians in his first epistle to them about his willingness to be thought of as a fool for Christ. And then in his second letter to the Corinthians, he's writing to them about the ministry of reconciliation that we've all been given as believers in Christ. That, that we've been commissioned to hold out the gospel to all nations. And he says in 2 Corinthians 5.13 that, that if we are beside ourselves, and that was, a, that was a Greek synonym for being out of your mind. If we're, if we're thought of as out of our mind, if, if we're thought of as being beside ourselves, if we're thought of being just a bit off, uh, mad even, if we're beside ourselves, it is for God But if we are in our right mind, it is for you. Meaning, we're willing to be thought of as not right. We're willing to be thought of as just a bit weird. Mad even. In order to be obedient to the commission that Christ has given to us. Are we so willing? Are we willing to be thought of as a bit off? Not right. Mad even. Are we willing to be considered out of our mind? Are we willing to be considered that in order to faithfully proclaim Christ and call sinners to repentance? Do we love Jesus that much? Do we love sinners that much? Do we truly believe these gospel truths that much? Church, this is what it will take for us to be obedient to the commission that Christ has given to us. Now, as we continue in his speech, Paul seems to be narrowing the focus here on King Agrippa. There are other people in the room here, but he's directing his attention to the king. Verse 26. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. In other words, it's plain to see. If one is the least bit familiar with Jewish tradition, 
and you're paying attention here, you won't miss this. You'll see this. He says in verse 27, King Agrippa, he addresses them directly, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Do you believe? He's calling King Agrippa to repent and to believe. And, and again, the, the, the word for believe here in our English Bibles is the Greek verb form of the noun for faith. It's the same root word. Believe is pistuo, faith is pistis. And so we could, we, we could see, hear Paul saying here, King Agrippa, do you faith? Do you believe? Do you believe the prophets? He's calling him to repent and believe. And how does Agrippa respond? He responds by asking Paul a question in verse 28. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? The word persuade means what we think it means. It means to convince. Agrippa is telling us here that Paul's speech has a persuasiveness to it. It was attempting to convince him of truth and, and persuade him to respond. Are you going to persuade me to become a Christian in such a short time? But is that Paul's aim to persuade? Is that Paul's aim to convince? Well, how does Paul answer his question? Verse 29, Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I would to God. That phrase, I would, there is typically translated in, in English Bibles as either I wish or I pray. In fact, if you have the NIV, it says wish, it says pray there, and the New American Standard says wish, but the point is he's directing his wish, he's directing his prayer to God. I would to God that you would become as I am except for these chains. I would to God, I pray this to God. And so while Paul does wish for Agrippa and everyone else within listening in this audience hall to come to faith in Jesus, he does wish that, but he lays that wish at God's feet because he recognizes that that is God's responsibility alone. No amount of persuasiveness on Paul's part would lead them to saving faith and repentance. And so Paul prays that God would do that. I would to God that you would become this. I lay that at God's feet, that God would bring them to repentance and faith. And so we should remember as we proclaim the gospel to our lost friends, neighbors, and co-workers that it is God who changes hearts. It's God who softens hearts and, and brings to faith and regenerates with new life. And so in our call for a response, which we ought to do, we must remember that we can't convince anyone to come to faith and we can't force anyone to repent. God must do a work on their heart. And so what do we do? We give them the gospel clearly, plainly, understandably, passionately, fervently, boldly, we give them the gospel. But we also pray. We ask God to grant them repentance and faith, to trust in Jesus for forgiveness, 
justification, and reconciliation. And that's what Paul does here. He recognizes that that's God's responsibility. And he lays that wish at God's feet. And then the setting closes in verses 30 through 32 with a reminder that God is sovereign. Then the king arose, and the governor and Bernice, his sister, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But apparently, in God's divine wisdom, in Paul's case, freedom from Roman incarceration was not part of God's sovereign plan for him. Instead, God's plan required that he stay in chains and that he remain incarcerated so that he would get to Rome and he would bring the gospel with him and subsequently the gospel would be projected to the ends of the earth, which was God's plan all along. And so our next time we will launch into that part of the end of the book of Acts as Paul begins his journey to Rome. But we discover here that Paul had learned to trust in God's sovereignty implicitly. To trust in his sovereign presence and his sovereign help, both in his life and his ministry, and in how he chooses to redeem sinners. He was trusting in God's sovereignty. And this greater trust in God compelled him to courageously defend the gospel and declare the gospel and to boldly call sinners to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. And that gospel courage would carry him through the arduous journey that he was about to undertake. And so for us again this morning, as we grow in our trust of God's sovereign presence in our lives, his sovereign provision for us and his plan for us, we will more courageously defend the gospel and more boldly call sinners to repentance and faith. And so consequently, our application must be centered on two things. First, learning to trust in God's sovereignty more. Trusting in his presence that he's, he's not absent, that he's with us. As we step out in faith to be an ambassador for Christ outside these walls and these doors, he goes with us. To trust in his provision that he'll give us the words to say in the moment in which we need it. And to trust in his plan, that those divine encounters are just that. They are divinely orchestrated, and he's put us there to represent him. And he'll help us do that. He will give us his sovereign help. Learn to trust in God's sovereignty more. And then, secondly, leaning on that trust in his sovereignty, we declare the gospel courageously, and we boldly call for sinners to respond to it. So church, if we lack courage, if we lack boldness in our witness for Jesus, then we need to go lean in to his sovereignty more and trust in his presence, his provision, and his plan so that we can then act out of that. Let's pray. 
Father, as we consider this commission that you have given, not just to Paul, but to all of those who, whom you have saved by grace through faith, we know that there are some within the sound of my voice this morning who have not come to faith in Jesus. And Father, we just pray, we, we echo Paul's sentiment. We would to God that they would become as we are, saved, forgiven, reconciled to you, justified to stand in your presence. God, would you bring them to repentance and faith right now to trust in Jesus as their only hope, to turn from their sin and self-rule and to turn to faith in Christ and his rule over their lives. And Father, may you cause them to live differently because they've been changed on the inside. That they will now live lives in keeping, of, in keeping with that kind of repentance. So Father, redeem sinners back to yourself this morning. Turn sinners to saints. Turn enemies into children. Reclaim for yourself worshipers for your own glory. And as we speak those words, Father, we are so thankful for our own Damascus Road experiences where you have done that in our lives. It is through and by no merit of our own. Simply by your sovereign grace and mercy that you've brought us across the line of faith. Father, may you cause us to grow in our trust of you, our trust in your sovereign presence, your provision and plan, and may that greater trust in you, Father, and your sovereign help in our lives compel us to be more courageous and more bold as we seek to be faithful witnesses for you and for your Son in this world to which you have sent us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.